G'day humans, welcome to the Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas, and this is a dangerous idea that has very much waxed and waned in its dangerousnessness uh, over the course of many decades. Does, does. Not sure why dangerousnessness had an extraness, but roll with it. This is, uh, this is all fun and games. Nuclear power, nuclear energy. What do you think of it? Good or bad? Thumbs up or thumbs down? You're not allowed nuance in this conversation. You're either you're either in favour of Chernobyl happening everywhere all the time, or you've got your head in the sand. You don't realise that nuclear is an essential part of our green future. I have been contacted a lot on social media by people saying, "Why don't you talk about nuclear on the show?" You've done lots of stuff about in the environment and about the electrical grid. We had Saul Griffith on the wonderful Saul Griffith. Uh, if you haven't listened to that episode, you should. It's kind of mind-blowing about what the next phase of human evolution in our energy consumption is, how we can have networked suburbs of, uh, you know, your your car is your battery for your house and your house is selling rooftop solar to your neighbours and the grid is smart and all of the energy is renewable and we have this in the palm of our hands right now. It's just a matter of making the necessary investments to make it happen. And I get super, super excited. And then someone says, well, actually, if you sort of crunch the numbers, like right, right now, like right, right, right now, we can't do that yet and get all the energy we need. So there's still a gap missing. Globally, maybe not in some countries, and I, I raised this with today's guest, maybe in countries like Australia that are bloody hot and blowy and sparsely populated, you can do 100% renewable. But, you know, that may not be the case in Belgium. Maybe Belgium needs a nuclear power plant. So people say, like, why is there this kind of taboo around nuclear? Nuclear is, it has to be part of the solution. Why aren't we talking about it as part of the solution? And I thought, do I get on a nuclear scientist, boring person who's going to go, rah, 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 nuclear power, this, nuclear power, that? Uh, or by definition, do I not want a nuclear science boring person? And would I pretty much rule out of a podcast an auditory medium, someone who goes, you wouldn't want to listen to such a person. Um, So I thought, let's talk to someone who has had the 180 that, uh, that the whole industry is trying to get the regular person to have. So Xeon Lights is an activist, a science communicator, has has spent most of her life being uh, an environmental protester and has protested outside coal-fired power stations and so on. She was a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion, you know, the outfit that has been been doing all those silly stunts like throwing paint on paintings and stuff like that on great works of art. Um, And as such, she was always very, very anti-nuclear because that is just one of the policy platforms of such wild-eyed green hippies. Uh, I love you. I love you, wild-eyed green hippies. And she had a change of heart. And now she talks about the necessity of nuclear power as being part of the energy mix. She's a public speaker. She's appeared on BBC Politics Live and Good Morning Britain and Sky News on Andrew Neil's show, such a classic show. And I don't know whether I've been swayed much further in favour of nuclear as a result of this conversation, but you may be, or you may not. You may say, I see through this charade that Xeon is trying to present to me. Um, but I hope you enjoyed this. You can find more of Xeon Lights's writing and argument on her substack. She also has a substack. It's xeonlights.substack.com. 
zion.com that's zion spelled like zion you know israel z-i-o-n or z-i-o-n if you're listening in america uh, she's also written a book called the ultimate guide to green parenting and she contributed to uh zero waste kids which became something of a phenomenon i hope you enjoy this chat with zion lights Britain, I'm in Devon. I do. I know it well. I think everyone knows De- everyone knows of Devon. Yeah, it's a really beautiful part of the world. And it has its namesake in a form of bologna, a form yeah. of processed meat. <laughs> yeah, it's a quirky little place. Um, and did you, uh, did you ride out the pandemic there? I did. It was the best place to be, to be honest. Mm. Um, I mean, I miss the travel, but, you know, when I travel, it's here that I like to come back to. It's very, um, it's very green. There's a lot of space. And, uh, yeah, my friends in London really suffered not having that kind of mm. outdoor access and small houses, small flats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I honestly can't complain. The kids were home from school. So we went to the park every day. We're right by a valley park. It was, it, aside from just being very isolated because I'm also a single parent. So, you know, I didn't we see any adults for, mm. for several months because it was very strict the lockdown here was very strict mm. um it was we weathered it okay i think compared to most people that can do your head in not having access to any other grown-ups can't it oh man do you know the first time after they lifted it and you could see people well, they lifted it temporarily in the end i i cried so much just after my friend hugged me i just cried and i didn't even know that i would i'm not particularly oh. emotional person but it yeah. was like, oh, someone's touching me. You know, not, yeah. it's not the a same with children because you're human. giving, you know, you're giving to them all day long. You're giving to them. Um, and yeah. yeah, someone, someone hugged me and they were, <laughs> are you okay, Zion? I said, I don't know. I thought I was, but actually human touch yeah. is kind of important, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And how old are they? How old are the kids? 11 and nine now. Right. Okay. So the, the balance of taking and giving should have sort of tipped somewhat more towards the they actually give you something yeah but there was just so much to navigate I was trying to work from home Mm. and then the second lockdown was even worse because they were expected to do school work from home so they had two separate curriculums I was trying to help them with and do my work not seeing anybody not able to get groceries because you couldn't take kids into stores with you and I'm on my own and the government didn't think about that what? I had to rely on people yeah I had to rely on people dropping off food for me which by the way is a very independent person sucked yeah. and I couldn't get online shops because they were all booked for um like vulnerable groups like elderly people and disabled yeah. people which is fine but they just didn't think Fuck about those vulnerable parents. groups am I right I mean seriously <laughs> <laughs> oh it sucks <laughs> Uh, no, but like, it's, that's amazing. You couldn't take children into shops. Terrible. It was so strict. What were the yeah. children supposed to do? Uh, not exist. <laughs> not exist. Yes. And they were yes. very strict. You know, they policed it. People got fined for for seeing family members or trying to go to funerals. They were very strict. It was, yeah. it was horrendous. This is um, the it, yes minister yeah. way of running a pandemic. I have a brilliant idea. We're going to not let children into shops. But what will the children do? Well, they shouldn't have been born but in the also, first place. But also now there's so much research on um, the mental health impacts on children. Mm. I mean, I didn't disagree with lockdowns at the time. You know, it's complicated and there was a lot going on and I didn't want my kids to get COVID. But mm. actually the mental health impacts on kids have been phenomenal and that's still playing out here. We've got serious anxiety um, problems, especially with young children who just didn't socialize for pretty much a year. Yeah. And they just didn't think about that at all. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, they probably did think about that and they concluded yeah. that, you know, n the number of people who would die from having hospitals that had zero capacity left. Well, now we've got, worse. yeah, now we've got people dying because they completely shut everything down. So all the waiting lists, you know, for, for serious yeah. things like cancer, they just shut it all down. Yeah. Um, and now people have died because they're still on these waiting lists because they can't catch up. It's just, it's yeah. just. We have the same thing. And then the anti-vaxxers <sighs> look at the spike in deaths and say, see, everybody's dying from vaccines. There's this mysterious increase in yeah. mortality. And, you know, that is largely because of the, of what you're saying that people. Yeah, we've, we've got that a bit here too. I don't think it's as bad here as it is in, in America or Australia, but we do have yeah. a little bit of that. Yeah. Well, also the, the, I think they cut off the, the time limit of saying that you died from COVID at like 90 days after you caught it here in Australia. So we have quite a lot of people right. who are dying of COVID related things They you know, they're old, they're infirm, they catch COVID, uh, they, they can't quite recover from it. And a hundred days later they die, but that's not from the COVID technically, according to the statistics. So they go into the all cause mortality and then the anti-vaxxers go, see, it was the vaccine. Right. So there's yeah. a lot going on. It's anyway, it's uh, <laughs> lovely to meet you. We can talk about, we can talk about COVID all. <laughs> God, the amount of, the amount of bloody oxygen that COVID has taken up in terms of yeah. our the opportunity cost of what we could have been talking about when we've been talking about this pandemic. It reminds me a bit of Brexit as well, that the, the, the the amount of intellectual capacity and yeah. like conversation hours that have been diverted into these, these. It's still going. It's still going. We didn't need. Well, we've had, we've recently had food shortages, things like tomatoes because things are being held up because of paperwork and basically yeah. rule changes because of Brexit. So it's opened up another big debate where a lot of people want a second referendum. Mm. But the government won't call one, but equally mm. I'm just kind of like, just, just stop please just stop yeah. talking about it it's been yeah. so long and and the thing is if you did call a referendum and then it probably w would now be that people wanted to go back in that's a whole other mess like will the eu even let us back in well, especially right. when this government Not... doesn't want to go back in and yeah. what will happen to all the people who still don't want to go back in will they call a third referendum you know it's just yeah, i'm yeah. just 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 leave it just stop mm, mm. <laughs> but also, it's, it's brussels, constantly in our headlines still i mean brussels wants to send a clear message to any other member state that might yes. consider doing such such yes. a thing you can't just pop out and then pop back in so they would make they would place the most onerous yes. burden on coming back yeah. in and then and we'd be another we'd, whole it'd be yeah. years of negotiation about how you get back in yeah and we've we yeah we'll have lost a lot of the benefits anyway i think either way um yeah but i mean i just avoid i tend to avoid talking about it because i just think it doesn't really go anywhere same with the covid stuff you know you could yep. say they did this wrong or they did that wrong it doesn't really change anything now we could talk no, about how nice. to deal with pandemics going forward in the future for sure we should be doing yeah. that but i don't see a lot of that um but no. yeah I, yeah that's right it's uh i did hear russell brand recently a gentleman who has uh, become slightly more erratic and eccentric yeah. in <laughs> recent years i must say so not not a i mean not someone i would put up on a pedestal as the source of all of my no. wisdom but uh nonetheless such an articulate and uh you know bouncy little brain yeah. that he, he's still i still like listening to him from time to time and he was on bill maher's show in the states and he was saying that like in terms of brexit that if you give the people who've been fucked over pretty badly for a long time a single binary button that says fuck you or not fuck you, 
then yeah, they might press the fuck you button. <laughs> you know, like that's basically Brexit in a nutshell. It's not like, oh, do we want to be in or out of the EU or this or that or Northern Ireland and where's the border going to be? Nobody gives a shit about that. It's like, do you want to say fuck you to the people who haven't cared about you for a few decades? Sure. Well, it, it's more complicated than that, though, right? It's easy to simplify. <laughs> You're saying Russell Brand did not encapsulate all of the nuances. Well, I used to love Russell Brand. Brand. He was so funny when he came on the scene, and I don't know what happened to him. He was better when he was just doing comedy. He was brilliant. Yeah. Um, I don't know what happened to him. But, um, yeah. Anyway. you know, there's a lot of different... If you talk to 10 different people um, who voted leave and you ask them why, you will get 10 different reasons. And there was a lot of it was misinformation. There was a lot of misinformation from the Leave campaign with Nigel Farage behind it. Mm. Um, Not just Nigel, bloody Bobo driving around in his big double-decker bus saying, you know. Well, yeah, yeah, but Nigel Nigel really led that campaign. I don't know how much you know about British politics, but he basically led that campaign. UKIP was was huge then. It was quite scary because down in Devon, you get a lot of kippers. It's It's not as multicultural and, and as tolerant as cities like London and Bristol so we had a lot of kippers here I even for the first time in my entire life living in Britain had a couple of racist comments which shocked me really? I, yeah it got really quite nasty there was quite nasty rhetoric around the campaign and these people completely misled you know rural communities who feel that they're struggling because minorities have come in which is funny right because Devon has the smallest number of minorities in the country <laughs> well, but that's, that's why always, they're more yes. afraid because you're yeah, not exposed yeah, yeah. to its contact yeah. theory in science but but anyway um they yeah so basically this deal was Johnson if if you if you back leave then I'll disband UKIP at the time of the election you'll get a majority because previously the conservatives weren't able to get a majority mm. and they did with 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 UKIP disbanded, which, you know, doesn't exist anymore. All those voters went over to Johnson because he'd campaigned for Brexit. Mm. Um, and now he's still pandering. The party's still pandering to them just, you know, this week saying, we're going to stop all migrants coming in. And it's really, honestly, just a minority of the population. Mm. Um, but they needed have, those votes. And it's I and mean, it's completely yeah. taken over all the all the rhetoric. There's so many things that we should be talking about, I think, but it's it's completely taken over. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so. I've, as an Australian, I've been struggling with this uh, this Faustian pact uh, for decades now that you know we have an incredibly harsh policy towards uh, boat arrivals and yeah. a very generous policy towards legitimately resettled uh, migrants and humanitarian refugees. Um, and it's it you know that people say you can't have the one without the other because you're not going to get public support for high levels of immigration unless people feel like they can control the borders and so there might be a bit of a bit of that going on but to see Britain specifically target like human, refugees as as being people who yeah. as a grandchild as a child of, of refugees myself who they were fled World War Two right yeah. into Australia when my dad was eight years old uh, yeah. on a boat it's like it's galling. It's pretty yeah, hard. and it's hateful rhetoric. I mean, I'm surprised they can use the language they use, but they um they honestly have so little support. They have a small faction of people that support them and who you know believe all the rhetoric. But most, I would still say, most Britons are very tolerant and don't recognise. I mean, if you look at the polls, if you feel uh, dejected by their their rhetoric, just look at the polls. They've never been so unpopular. They will be out at the next general election, no question. Mm. Yeah, but right. they won't call one, so we, we're all waiting for next year. Yeah. They, will, they will. Even Westminster is voting 60-70% against them. They are they are so unpopular. And that was right. the how many prime ministers have they cycled through? Five? Mm. Uh, they've mm. all had really low... Po- In fact, I think Johnson might have been the most popular <laughs> of them all. Um, Jeez. 
Sunak's that's yeah yeah Sunak's not popular and Truss was extremely unpopular they hated her and May they hated her too so um and that's that's even their own party you know their own party forgot about Truss the legislator lady who was in power for yeah she I can't remember how long it was it was it was the shortest in our history in British history it was the shortest (laughs) (laughs) and that was because they were struggling to find a candidate so Rishi really was the last at the bottom of a barrel they didn't want Mm. him um, All right, we'll take the well-educated, articulate Indian bloke. Let's do it. <laughs> We've got to do it. <laughs> There's nobody left but, in the battle. Yeah, but um, yeah. So I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not dejected by it. They, they'll be out soon, and and I think, I think they've done a lot of damage but all those things can be repaired you know the nhs could be repaired there's a lot of stuff that can be repaired mm. um i don't think anything's beyond you know savable it's just really pants to be british at the moment yeah um for yeah. many different reasons and to be honest i don't see why asylum seekers would want to come here this is not a welcoming country right now i don't mm. know if you saw but the, all this stuff they're staring up there are actually people mobs of people going outside centers where they found out that asylum seekers were being held temporarily and they were, you know, chanting, had horrible placards. They set fire to some cars, telling them to get out. Imagine going through who knows what in their mm. country and, and thinking, I finally reached the shore on some rickety boat. I reached this shore and I'm safe. And then you've got people saying, we don't want you go home. Mm. It was, I saw the, the video and I was, it made me sad. You know, we used to be a really tolerant country. Um I say, yeah. as a brown woman who's lived here my whole life, who has migrant mm. parents, right? Mm. Um, not saying there haven't been occasional issues, but I think you'll get that in any kind of, you know, you'll you'll get that in any minority group. There'll always be some frictions. That's just people, um, but generally very tolerant, welcoming people. And yeah, Look, a lot I of mean, to be fair, there were probably there was probably a lot of eyebrow raising and hostility when our uh, parents and grandparents. Oh yeah, there was. Yeah, we well, went through something of a golden age it, in the maybe in the nineties and early. Yeah, early no, there was, and that was the time of um, you know Enoch Powell was at large then. Mm. He said some awful things, and my parent, my dad, said to me once, um, "Bless him," he said, "They'll never accept you." He's talking about white people. They'll never mm. accept you. You can be friends with them, and you can marry one, which I did, but they'll never accept you. And he was wrong. You know, he was wrong. Mm. Um, mm. But he was. That was his experience, and I understood that. But at the same time, he was welcomed here as a worker. He was brought yeah. here as a worker, factory worker. He spent his entire life working in these factories, helped to build Britain, you know. So, you know, there was he was appreciated and, and also not appreciated. And he had a strong working class community in those factories where he was accepted because they were workers. And there's a very kind of, you know, working class element back then with miners, with factory workers, when we had all that industry, which yeah. we don't anymore. Yeah. They, you know, so they 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 were able to look past differences. Um, it's but, funny that yeah. your dad would say, you know, they'll never accept you because that, that was true of that generation. And then I feel yeah. like our generation has said, actually, no, we all can. This, like, the, there is glory and majesty and beauty in the melting pot and we are all we we do accept each other and now i mean not to sound like a curmudgeonly old man but it's the rhetoric that i hear from the younger wokesters is actually drifting back to your dad's oh, i hate it i hate it but i hate it because we've spent saying, like the reality yeah. is they're never going to accept us it's, i mean it's what i've said about when i listened to you talking about you know, the Iranian cab driver and you, you didn't feel you could ask. That just makes me sad. Because actually yeah, that's explain to people what that is. The, so on a recent reason, podcast I was saying that Yeah. I couldn't ask him where he was from. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. But but you know the reason 
we don't like i don't i don't like that i mean obviously there will be some people of color who don't like it but for me it's you've already labeled me and pigeonholed me but what seems to be happening with younger people is they like the labels more than ever and even i've been in meetings now and you have to start the meeting with your pronouns and i just think <laughs> it's just why <laughs> just why like if you want different pronouns i respect that and i'll use it it takes nothing from me to do that but there's just so much label it's someone who's tried to escape these labels for my whole life you know i always have to tick on the forms asian british it's changed over the years british asian british indian indian whatever um you know every form that i ever complete has that and we've just lived with it we've just mm. you know what we just accepted it i only recently found out that in wales they have the option of english indian and I thought that was interesting because when oh, wow. Farage was stirring up all this UKIP stuff, he said, these foreigners, they don't identify as English. And I did think that's interesting because I have always identified as British. And then it occurred to me that we've never had the option to say English. It's not an option on any tick form in England. So, you know, change, change, but fine, whatever. I'll just tick whatever box. And now you've got all these people say, we want all these extra boxes is really important. And I'm thinking, is that where it's really important? <laughs> because... Mm -hmm. I feel like there's this whole generation of people who just sucked it up and lived with it. And actually, we're okay. You know, it's just a box to me. It's, you know, it's, I, I am British. I am English. That's, that's just a fact. That's, yeah. I am, you know, it's all about whether or not you feel accepted and integrated in society. And I, I am and I do. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't need, I don't really need to change the boxes, but I, I look at the hyper focus now on, have you put in the right boxes? You know, why Why isn't there a third box for these pronouns or whatever? And I just think, is that the way to resolve these issues? Mm. Is that going to make people more tolerant? I'm not sure it is. And but... do you see the, so where are you from question as being part of the box mentality or part of the anti-box mentality? Um, well, I mean, I can't speak for all Asian people or, or people of colour because some people some people do hate that question and I can see why because you can be asked it a lot and it can get annoying but I I've never minded because I mean it's not putting me in a box it's just facts it's just factually what's your heritage okay my parents migrated here from the Punjab in India but mm. I am British born and have only been there twice when they made me go and frankly, I hated it because rural <laughs> poverty, rural poverty is not that fun, by the way, Josh. It's terrible. It's, it's horrible. It's when you have a lovely place to go back to and spend the night. Exactly. The well, they don't, night. which is why they got on a little boat and came yeah. to the middle of nowhere and they yeah. couldn't speak the language, but they desperately wanted out and they miss it. You know, they miss their family, but they'll never go back. They always yeah. say, oh, we'll go back. They, they didn't even like it when we visited. When they took me as a teenager, they were paranoid about snakes they were, they were, they didn't like that. They were no, there's I'm no not, lighting I'm after dark. It's pitch black. But I remember saying to my dad, but you lived here. Why are you so afraid of snakes? But it's once you get used to that safety, you don't want to go back to that risk. And there is risk because people do get bitten and die in India. Millions of people. Yeah, yeah. Come on. There's, of all the things that could happen to you in India. <laughs> no, but there's snakes. people in the village Asun, who tell stories, yeah. right? Some yeah. person that got bitten. Stories. Yeah. And it's, and it's horrific. The death is horrific, right? And, and the thing is, it's treatable. But the problem in the rural areas is the villages don't have access to anti-venom. And they're like four hours from the nearest hospital and no one has right. a car. So it's that's the problem. You know, it is treatable. But once you're there, you're just there and you're stuck. And once yeah. when you've lived for a long time with access to healthcare and education, all these things, and you go some, to somewhere like that, it is very shocking. It's shocking for me. But even for them going back, 
Well, as someone as someone who comes from the nation that is home to nine of the ten most venomous snakes in the world, and who constantly has yeah, but it's different. Don't want to come to Australia because okay, but it's different because I'll tell you. Look, I'll be honest with you. I had that preconception before I came last year. I came to Australia to do a tour to talk about nuclear. Got asked to come. And um, that was my first time going there. And everybody I know said the same thing. Like, watch out for spiders. Why are you going there? They have all these snakes and et cetera, et cetera. But then I got there and I was like, this is safer than like most places. Because the cities are completely fine, aren't they? It's when you get into the sticks that you've got. So it's very... Even in the sticks, I don't think a person has died of a... Right, a snake bite in Australia. In well, in yeah, wanna, well, in India, yeah, the problem is years, if you're in a years. village, you are surrounded by by jungle, and they live harmoniously. You know, you they are, know there are tigers, and they know bit, there's monkeys, the, the but they do get bit, occasionally bitten. The difference people do get bitten here. The difference is that we have the money, the public you health funds, with anti venom yeah. everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. look, India accounts for almost eighty percent of global snake bite deaths, with over sixty-four thousand people dying a year. What I'm saying is I've been to India many times and every single day is a near miss of being run over by a motorbike. Dying no, I know. No. Look, 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 I know, I know what you're saying because I talk about risk. I talk about risk, but this is what I talk about with risk with nuclear rights. snake is not going to do you anything. <laughs> no, no, you're right. You are right. Because this is what I talk about with risk with nuclear is that people are afraid because of a few meltdowns, but actually the fossil fuels that we're dependent on are you know contributing so heavily to so many deaths just from air pollution alone and mm. we we just live with that but we're afraid of a few meltdowns and that you know yeah. again our risk risk perception is wrong because of, and it's normally because of a few scary stories you know you hear a scary story someone got bitten by a snake it stays with you it's kind of an evolutionary thing i think right danger whereas with cars we all just live with the risk of cars when we know statistically that actually you know a lot of people we'll get into car accidents or get hit yes. by a car and we'll die. Yeah. But it's so normal to us. We don't associate it with, you know, some rare, scary event that feels out of our control. No, that's right. And I mean, cars are a good analogy to plane crashes as well. I mean, a plane crashes and it's all over the news for weeks. Uh, and, you know, that is a vanishingly tiny number of people and a vanishingly low risk in comparison to the background uh, sort of radiation, to coin a term, of car accidents yeah. that's taking place all the time. And maybe, and I've, I've always been partial to the analogy of the the nuclear accident being a bit like a car crash. It's It's big and glamorous and all happens at once and captivates our attention, but we don't pay any attention to the to the people who are dying of uh, pulmonary and cardiovascular diseases because they've been inhaling toxic fumes from cars, putting aside climate change for just a moment. But but should we just start with um, the safety of nuclear power at the moment? Because I and many people like me who are sort of on the nuclear fence, uh, who you may want to nudge off to one side or another, uh, I think I've absorbed now that it's safe that modern mm-hmm. reactors are safe mm-hmm. i haven't been sold on why they're actually worth the cost in an era of rapidly developing renewable energy but let's just let's just deal with the safety question first what is the safety profile of a modern nuclear reactor can we get a chernobyl no we cannot get a chernobyl um I wrote an article about this actually for my Substack on meltdowns and what actually happens in meltdowns, which is vastly different to what people imagine happens. And Chernobyl is a completely different example of a meltdown because they used a 
um, reactor called RBMK. And without getting too technical, basically it was because it was a Soviet Union design and they wanted to use it. Um, they knew that it had flaws, that it was a flawed model and they went with that risk anyway. And that reactor was capable of exploding, but it was a hydrogen explosion. And therefore there was a lot of radiation released by that explosion. Now, no other reactor can explode in that way. When they melt down, they just shut down. Um, and because of what happened at Chernobyl, all the RBNKs that still are used, which are in Russia pretty much, um, they've been upgraded with extra safety systems so that, again, they can't explode now. So that that was a complete one-off. Um, and additionally, the people that died, a few thousand people died because of that reaction. Um, it was because of mismanagement more than anything else, because they didn't tell people, because they wanted to hide the fact that it had happened. And actually, the Western world only found out because we can measure and map yeah. radiation yeah. exposure around the world. And we could see there's something happening there, but they were even then they were denying it. So they kept staff there. They didn't just keep staff there. They invited more staff to come and work there to, in quotations, fix the reactor, which which wasn't there anymore. And they mm. didn't evacuate the area at all. So people who could have had a mild dose of radiation could have been treated with iodine, and they weren't. They weren't even told but that wait, that had happened. Just, just park all of the obvious Soviet uh, malfeasance and in, ineptitude, uh, because I think people are, are, are concerned about the possibility of that happening, of something like that happening at all, regardless, even if you had the most competent, even if the Norwegians were running it, you still wouldn't want the meltdown to happen, even if they were great at evacuating people afterwards. Well, so, so yeah, yeah, so, so Chernobyl is the... And like to basically reactor design, like what happens when a tidal wave hits a Fukushima reactor? What happened at Three Mile Island? Some I hear nuclear advocates saying the latest design of, of nuclear reactors are not like that and basically they can't like they're they're functionally inert once they go off and like i don't know some of them are pebble bed things that have something drop into a cooling pond so that it can't melt down or something i don't, yeah, I don't know they, so they, i mean yeah so the new tech is coming along really nicely and it has it just has lower risk i guess um but there isn't anywhere that is the reason i like to talk about fish just ordinary fish and what we use at the moment um, which is EPRs or AP1000 reactors, um, not RBMKs, is because we know that they can decarbonize. And for me, that's the most important thing. We need to get off of fossil fuels. So why do we need nuclear? Well, if we only have renewables, the, the battery storage isn't good enough for us to only rely on renewables, although we need to break that term down because it depends on what renewables you're talking about. We can maybe do that in a minute. Mm. Fukushima did get hit by a tsunami an earthquake and a tsunami. So it's probably the worst case disaster where just a normal reactor, not not a flawed design that isn't used anymore, but a normal reactor um, was hit by 13 meter high waves and it damaged the emergency diesel generators in the reactor. So they, but they, they evacuated the area. Nobody died. Lots of people died because of tsunami and the earthquake. Nobody died um, from the meltdown. And actually, later a report found that the evacuation the evacuation was unnecessary. So they they feared a much bigger um, reaction than actually occurred. Um, so it's not. I mean, you say we don't want them to happen. Sure, we don't. But it's still that that kind of risk analysis where nobody died. Lots of people got scared and decided to shut down all their nuclear as a result. But actually, more people died from those shutdowns 
more there's right. masses of data on this so james hansen don't know if you've heard of him he's kind of no. known as the grandfather of climate change he was the first climate scientist to testify in congress oh, um, of course yes yes yeah yes. to say look this is happening so he's crunched so many numbers on this he actually wrote a paper called nuclear saves lives it's a scientific paper and he calculated the number of deaths from shutting down nuclear power plants after the Fukushima disaster. So when countries like Germany and Japan said, we're going to shut them all down now. And he said over a thousand people died a month just from those shutdowns, because what happened is they went back to fossil fuels. They might have had a bit of renewables in the mix, but it's still, even right now, majority fossil fuels. It's very, Mm. very hard to wean off of fossil fuels. So that was actually the worst outcome. The consequences of climate change there, or is he just talking about? No, he's just talking about respiratory. Yeah, there's a paper on it where he's just so he's taking what it's it's as factual as you can get because obviously Mm. with climate change, you know, there's a lot of variables and it's hard to say whether a specific weather event was because of this or wasn't. But with with um, air pollution, we have masses of data, and it is correct that many more millions of people died because of these nuclear power shutdowns. Mm. Because France had 11. Sorry, um, ex- Germany had 11. And they shut, they've shut. they got three reactors left now, but they've shut 11 nuclear power plants. So there's yeah. a lot of clean energy. And it hasn't been replaced out. by renewables. They have built lots of renewables. And I think that's good. And that's helped to bring the cost down. But they, they, they still had to back up with something, right? So they shut coal and they shut nuclear. And they found that they ended up reliant on coal. And they're burning a lot of coal now, as you probably saw with the Battle of Lutzerath. Did you see that? What's that? Oh, so uh, they, so this happened recently where they basically cleared a village in Germany because they want to mine for coal there. So a lot of activists oh, went, yes. down I, I uh, went down there. Greta went down there. Yeah, but, but the irony is that's the outcome of shutting down nuclear power stations, which are not going to get hit by a tsunami or earthquake. It's not a risk in Germany. Um, it was just misplaced fear. And actually, people have died because of that fear. And yeah. People will continue to die. And that is that is a fact that is not conjecture, that is based on air pollution alone before you start talking about long-term impacts and impacts in you know, other countries because of climate change. The other concern is I, I can hear the listener thinking, yes, but what about the toxic waste that lasts for tens of thousands of years? And we can get to that. But So I just want to flag that and park sure. it put aside for the moment. Um, I mean, for me, once you throw in, having lived through a preview of what uh, our the next few decades or the next century is going to look like in Australia, which is the most vulnerable uh, rich country mm-hmm. to climate mm-hmm. change uh, in the form of the bushfires in 2019 to 2020, Mm-hmm. And then floods over the past twelve to eighteen months uh, of scales and and cost and inconvenience and loss of life and loss of uh, just loved ones and you know everything mm-hmm. that people cherish. Mm-hmm. It's relentlessly heartbreaking and and mm-hmm. just it's not going to be fun. Like even if you even if you take the most moderate estimations about climate chaos and you're sort of a skeptic on on this and you you think it's ridiculous for people to claim that humankind faces an existential threat at the very least we can say it's going to be enormously expensive and a great big pain in the ass and a huge hassle mm-hmm. and very destabilizing to our politics to be constantly buffeted by extreme weather events um so for me the, the the fact that you can park that consideration and still come out in favor of nuclear simply on the basis of emissions uh, like not carbon emissions but actual emissions that you're breathing in and that are making you mm-hmm. sick is is a compelling case for nuclear it doesn't quite get me to the place of 
believing that it's a better investment given how, I mean, I understand why you wouldn't want to close a nuclear plant. I'm not sure why you'd want to spend tens or hundreds of millions of dollars creating nuclear plants when that same money could be put into renewables. And although Mm -hmm. you say that we don't have the batteries for it yet, you know, you talk to very clever people and they're talking about having communities that are networked where your electric car, you know, in 10 or 20 years, most vast majority of us are going to be driving electric cars that are gigantic batteries that will be part of the grid. We'll be able to sell electricity from our rooftop solar back to our neighbor's when we're on holidays, you know, and it, mm-hmm. there'll be smart grids, like the idea mm-hmm. that we need that batteries mm-hmm. where the technology is increasing so quickly are going to be the impediment to us using wind and solar to get ourselves out of the climate crisis. Like I, I don't see where the necessity of. Well, so, yeah. So this is where, this is why I changed my mind because if, if anyone knows my background, I used to be an anti-nuclear protester. I was, in the environmental movement from a very young age. I was um, arrested in my 20s for shutting down a coal-fired power station here, which is Kings North at the time. Um, I've been, you know, involved for a long time. And then my last kind of stint was as a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion. And I was, when you're in those groups, you are just, you know, you're afraid of nuclear. They, that's, you're anti-nuclear, that's just standard. And you promote renewables, which I did. Um, and I started speaking to experts and again, people like James Hansen, who's crunched numbers on this. And he said very clearly, we're not going to be able to do it with renewables alone. The storage isn't there. And this was, this was 15 years ago. And I would say exactly what you said. There are advances. It will be here. It's around the corner. And I've come to the point now, Josh, where I just think we can't wait to turn more corners. We've got to do what we know works now. And where has been able to decarbonize in the world? What large industrial grids have been able to decarbonize? We can look at Sweden, we can look at France, places that have already managed to get their emissions down. They have only done it with a huge amount of nuclear energy and or hydropower. So Sweden hydropower because it's geographically available. France hasn't had that option. So they've had over 70% nuclear in their mix since the 1980s. So these are the countries that have managed that are large industrial grids. Now, has anywhere managed to do it with just renewables? If there was a case study where I could say, yeah, this is possible, let's do this, let's decarbonize, I would 100% support it. But the only case study I know where they tried is they failed, which was Germany, right? They had Energiewinder. This was a policy to phase out all nuclear and all coal. Um, and it came off the back of the 20, 2011 Fukushima meltdown because they panicked and they said, right, we've never liked it anyway. They had Angela Merkel, um, the Green Party, you know, leading the way. And they 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 decided, Enigewinda, we're going to just go with renewables. They pumped loads of money. I mean, you say nuclear is expensive. They spent billions and billions on renewables. I'm not saying that that's a mistake, because as you say, the costs of not acting are far greater. And them doing so uh, enabled an experiment to take place where we could see whether or not this worked. What has been the outcome of that? They found that they could not, they could not manage without a base load power. That's just that is where the battery storage is at. There are lots of people, clever people saying this, that, and the other about battery storage. Great, I've been hearing that for fifteen years, but it doesn't exist at scale. It doesn't exist where you can store it for more than you know, even a few hours. Actually, um, amazing if they 
managed to challenge the laws of physics and create something better than that, but they haven't yet. This is very different to running a car. Right. It's a actually, bit, it's and actually, it's, it's, if you have an electric hang on, car, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, you do hang on, have to recharge it quite hang on, 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 hang on. I can't let you get away with saying if they change the laws of physics. There are, everyone who works in renewables says, like, there are so many options. I'm not saying that it's an easy thing to flick a switch on right now, but battery technology is run as a advancing at, a, at runaway speeds you've got all kinds of things i mean you've got hydro storage you can you know use the electricity to pump water up a mountain and then use that that's a way of storing electricity you've got these salt things where they can store it in superheated salt and then that burns water i mean there's a bazillion different things that people are working on that don't require you to breach the laws of physics to be able to store okay but hang on a minute i'm when i say that i'm quoting a renowned physicist i don't know if you know who he is in australia david mckay a renowned physicist, uh, he was knighted, he was a British physicist ma mathematician. He wrote an entire book on this called Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. He's passed away now, but he he's made that book freely available online um, for anybody to read, and it's still up. When was that? I mean, it, it, um, even in the past eight years, there's been, like, revolution. Yeah, revolution. so it was um, 20, 2014, something like that. But no, 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 but in the book where he basically it's really good if 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 you like data it's really good it's not about selling opinions it's not news articles he's he maps out this is how much land we need for x this is how many materials we need for for y this is how much energy we need even if we're saying we're going to reduce how much we use and the numbers do not add up if you don't have any kind of base load for renewables not for a large industrial grid. He, and it's very, very clear data. And I always urge people to go and take a look at it because it was one of the things that made me change my mind. Hmm. And he said, the fundamental laws of physics will not change in a way that will enable us to, to have storage where we can only use wind and solar. He said that. Well, he's wrong. He's you can say he's wrong. You can say he's wrong and you can say lots of... Um, other renewables people have said that it's not true and i i honestly would say i don't know if he's proved wrong i'll change my mind but i but the point is that he hasn't been done anywhere in the world right and germany has tried they've put lots of money into this and what they found was they still needed a lot of gas to back up renewables so they they were they um had the Nord Stream pipeline which they agreed mm -hmm. to um which has now fallen through which means they have a huge energy shortage which is affecting all of europe um and they had to import a lot of coal to fill the gap. And now they've, they're just they're just completely back on coal. They've, so the mothballed coal fire power stations that they shut down being reopened. They're mining for coal. They're not they're not um, they're not having blackouts because they have a lot of coal. But their emissions their emissions are horrendous. And this is yeah. how many years? I'm sorry, but how many years of so-called green climate policy is that? 2011 they began this. And it failed. And I honestly don't think we can risk failures. We're talking about thousands of lives. We've just said that just from air pollution, this is thousands of lives because they wanted to risk an experiment. Now, I'm not against the principle of experimenting. I think it's good. But then we've got to use that data and say, do you know what? Maybe we were wrong, which is what I did. I used to go to anti-nuclear protests. I was really heavily involved in that movement. And I was utterly, utterly wrong, which is why I actually decided to kind of go around addressing misinformation about it now because so much of that is still floating around and it, it's different arguments it used to be it's not safe well now a lot of people kind of don't feel that anymore uh a lot more people used to say it, it's about the waste but they realize okay the waste doesn't harm anybody 
now it's become new things like cost. Well, I think there's no cost that's too, you know, no cost is, is too much to fix what's coming. Um, I think if, if people think it's too expensive, they're really not understanding what it will cost us in terms of both financially and human life and just, you know, the impact on the one habitable planet in the universe that we live on, mm -hmm. uh, the one known habitable planet. Um, I just think we need to pump that money in now because, you know, the impact, the impacts as well have been assessed of the cost to us of not doing so. And it's trillions, right? It's going to cost the global economy trillions. But I don't really like just bringing it down to cost because I think it's, I just, you know, can you put a price on human life and the one planet? I just, I don't know. I think it's bizarre. I understand I understand that governments need to look at costs and there, this is where I would, go, I can discuss costs. There are lots, there's research on cost, right? The countries that have managed to build nuclear in, um, in a, using a standardization model where they build it basically like they build one reactor, like a Lego model. They get the same engineers to build the same reactor again and again on kind of, you know, one after the other. The cost does come down significantly and there's a paper on this um, where that's about the standardization model in Korea where they did that. And yes, the first one required a lot of investment and then it went, got cheaper and cheaper. And then you have 60 to 80 years of clean energy, you know, that doesn't need any fossil fuel backup. Mm. Um, and, and, and I'm not saying don't have renewables. I think it's good to complement. I don't think it's ever good to put all your eggs in one basket. And that is what the scientific consensus says of the intergovernment, intergovernmental panel on climate change, which is, you know, you know, we, we can talk about opinions all day. Do we like this? Don't we like this? The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is an incredible uh, feat of humanity. It's the, it has the biggest scientific consensus of any group ever. This is top climate scientists around the world who sit down and crunch the numbers. This is why we know that climate change is so bad. It comes from the IPCC. And they sit down and they crunch numbers and they come to a consensus and they have 99% consensus of that data, right? So if you look at the report from 2018, the 1.5 warming report, it's called, that, that report is where they say these are the impacts of climate change. So when you talk about impacts, it's all in there. That same report has a mitigation chapter on what we need to do to fix it. And if you look at the energy section, anyone is free to look this up at any time, the energy section says we can only decarbonize with a combination of nuclear and renewables. That is what it says. Now, it, then it has different scenarios for how much of each. Some of them, you know, quadruple nuclear, nuclear and some have less. Um, but all of them require both. So you can speak to an outlier. You can speak to individuals who feel that the future will be different and the technology will change. And they may be correct. But if you go by the current international scientific consensus of the top minds that we have working on this, the only reason we know climate change is so serious is because of them. They are also telling us that this is how you decarbonize. So I'm not mm. going to argue with that. And, and that is available, freely available data for anyone to look but at. And what, you, are you, what are you saying they're saying? They're saying that you need a mix, that you're going to need. You have to have a mix. To, yeah. In order to decarbonize, you have to have a mix of nuclear and renewables, which is also what I was saying about but, I mean, the so countries have managed it. They've already done that. I mean, it also depends on the country, right? I mean, you know, you hear a lot from people from nuclear advocates saying, or from fossil fuel, fossil fuel advocates and coal and the coal industry, you know, what happens when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow? Now, in a country like Germany, there may be times where the entire for the in the entire country the sun is not shining and the wind is not blowing. In a country like Australia, it may be the case that where you are, the sun is not shining and the wind is not blowing. 
But as Saul Griffith, who I've had on this show before, who's a, a, an expert on uh, on the electrification of the of the grid and so on, and has advised the Biden administration on its climate policy, in places like Australia and the United States, the wind is always blowing and the sun is mm-hmm. always shining mm-hmm. somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that locally, you know, you put a solar panel on your roof, you'll benefit from that. And from what I've no, 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 not that. Of... He's saying he's saying the mm-hmm. criticism of something like solar panels on your roof is what happens when it's raining, right? And I can't power my house using my solar uh using my the solar panels on my roof in a country like germany it may be the case that you don't have any other options because for for a thousand kilometers around you it's also gray and rainy and not very windy Mm -hmm. but in a country like australia or the united states somewhere in a 1000 kilometer radius it's very sunny so you don't need to rely on yeah sure but what you're talking about is so let's let's go to cost now because this is an interesting um thing to dive into so when you say that renewables are cheaper are you talking about the cost of an entire power plant nuclear power plant versus a bunch of solar panels because actually the solar panels or wind turbines that that cost for paying for just them is not the full cost it's what you're talking about which is connecting the grid across a country which no one has achieved yet which I'm not saying it's it's impossible. Again, it would be an experiment. Now, I personally don't think that we should go against the scientific consensus on what we should do. And I don't think that we should risk another experiment because honestly, people have lost their lives because of actions of Germany. And not just Germany, Belgium also closed their reactors. France did, although they've changed their minds now. Um, uh, sorry, not France, Japan did, but they've changed their minds now and they're reopening the reactors. Um, so right, can, we, can we just separate cost... not closing reactors from launching yeah. new reactors? Because I think I do think the calculus is different. I'm with you 100%. Why would anyone close an existing nuclear reactor? You've already spent the money on it. It's giving you free energy, like leave the damn thing open. Sure, but then, but then what you can say is, well, when they close naturally then, what, what will replace them? So Germany did put a lot of money into renewables and they haven't managed to replace their baseload for nuclear or coal. They just haven't. And they've, they started that program in 2011. So they have had a lot of time and they have spent a lot of money on it. I'm not saying that's wasted money. Um, I'm just saying it's a shame that the outcome is that their emissions are some of the highest in Europe. And they've got people in Germany rationing, being told how long to shower for and to turn off, you know, to turn off their gas stoves after 5 p.m. This is real. Uh, mm. oh, that's yeah, that's great. That means that's good right. in that it means they avoid blackouts. But is this the way we should be living in winter? People not being able to use the heating. You know, the, these are these hang are just on, hang on. That's, happening, that, that's happening everywhere in Europe because of Ukraine. It's happening. No, no, no. It is happening everywhere in Europe. But some countries are weathering it better, and some are suffering more. So because yeah. Germany was hit, so Germany was hit hardest because of the Nord Stream pipeline. Yes. Like they were really reliant on that but they made that decision to go with gas over nuclear which was a wrong decision yeah yeah totally um, and, and actually if you want to think about cost the cost of Nord Stream nobody seems to talk about the cost of fossil fuels it's really odd um you know the, the cost was substantial and now they've lost that um a nuclear so the cost of a nuclear power plant sure you know a few few billion you got to put that money in uh that that is a cost of paying workers for a lifetime of working at those plants because they're very high paid jobs anywhere you look they're unionized jobs over here they are i believe they are in america i think in most places they're unionized jobs Mm. um and over the lifetime of the plant you're going to get at least 60 years of clean energy day day and night doesn't matter about weather that's that's a lot of money that you're getting right a lot of um benefit you're getting for your money 
Now, I don't want to, I want to be careful here because then people will say I'm criticizing renewables and I'm not. I'm very clear on that we need all the clean energy that we can get. We need, fossil fuels is the thing we need to get rid of, right? That I've spent a lifetime processing, protesting fossil fuels. And I, I think it's sad that we haven't weaned off of them and we, we've had so many opportunities and the technology is there. Um, to, but for renewables, to get the grid that you're talking about, this is a huge amount of infrastructure that doesn't mm. exist. It's mm. huge. The cost of that is phenomenal and it is not taken into account in any costing models. So when you look at the models, they're talking about the cost of solar panels. They are cheap. They're made in China. China's, China controls the entire solar panel chain. They get the polysilicon there. They get the lithium there. They, although there are other places now where um, lithium mining is taking off. Um, and then they, they create them there. They make them there, right? And then they ship them abroad. Now, I'm not even saying that's a reason not to invest in solar panels. That, that's where they come from. That's why they're cheap. Okay, fine. But then you've got to create an entire grid, which is poles and wires that don't exist, connecting huge areas of land so that you can transport the energy from, yeah, where it's when it's sunny to where it's not sunny. This has, first of all, never been done before. So it's a lot of money to spend. Wait, what do you mean it's never been done before? We had like, you know, in the post-war period in Australia, we basically had to electrify the entire country and whole regions of, of the country that, you know, all of the new world countries that aren't old European countries have had to build massive grids. We had something called the hydroelectric scheme in the Snowy Mountains. Which yeah, sorry. No, I meant for wind and solar. It hasn't been done. Right. So they, I mean, you know, so Germany same, tried. Same you, I mean, it's all, we know how to build poles and we know how to build wires. Um, hi, so let's break down the renewables thing though, because you said hydro, well, hydro is extremely reliable, right? Hydro is, I think renewables is the wrong term. Like we use renewables, renewables means hydropower, which is really reliable, but only geographically possible in some places. Yeah. Um, it means biomass, which is extremely polluting and should not be included in those numbers, basically burning no. wood. Yes. It can be, it can be from, you know, wood pellets from, from felled, you know, uh, forests that were going to be cut down anyway but actually the figures show it's often not there's too many loopholes and but and the other thing is when you look at renewables figures for any country most of it like in britain it's mostly from biomass so it looks like mm. it's coming from wind and solar i would, which I would agree with I would sadly, sadly it's in all the figures for biomass biological material from well it is renewable. it is it is and then so is biogas again biogas can be done efficiently if it's waste that's breaking down anyway and you're harvesting that that okay but if you're creating waste and believe believe it or not people do this companies do this and they sell it as renewable and it's even been caught out here with renewable providers here they say they're 100 renewable the mass most of it is either biomass or biogas where they're getting um they create waste to break it down in plants where they then create energy out of the methane so they're actually creating more waste so that shouldn't be in there wind and solar are in there they should be in there but they are the more tricky ones because they like biogas and biomass and hydropower are, you know, 24 seven reliable. You can just churn this stuff out like nuclear and like fossil fuels, but wind and solar do require a lot more infrastructure behind them. And that is expensive. Mm. And that, but I'm not saying that that's an argument against it. That's an argument people use against nuclear. I don't, I don't agree with that. I think we should invest as much as we can in clean energy. These are good jobs for people who work in, you know, the gas and coal industry who want to do, they, they don't want to leave the, lose their livelihoods. They have lots of expertise. Let's bring them over to these clean industries. That means you've got to pay the workers. It's going to cost you money. 
but you've got to think of benefits to society. And actually, if you add all of this up, nuclear is not more expensive, right? It's not. Right. And I'm not I'm not saying this to be anti-renewables because this is what people will say, which is why I don't like getting into it. But look, a solar panel, do you know how long a solar panel lasts? How long? 25 years max. So is that in the costing? Turb wind turbines, same thing, 30 years maybe. So you've got a nuclear power plant that will last for 60 years. So how are you adding up the cost? How are people right. adding up? They are not looking right. at the grid. They are not including replacement replacement for all of these panels which also very difficult to recycle and that needs to really take off actually and i hope it does but the moment mm. here they end up in landfill sites no it's worse than that josh they get sent abroad to poor countries where they end up in landfill sites and they are toxic waste we want to talk about waste very toxic waste mercury cadmium leaching out into the land because it's not managed it's not part it's not costed as part of the system so you right. can say it's cheaper, but it's not in there. Now with so nuclear, it's expensive because the waste management is costed within. So you have to, you have to have waste management in inbuilt. Right. In, in so just to, just to get to, I want to get to the positives of uh, nuclear and to some of the fallacies of, about it. But to summarize what I'm hearing you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's a bit of a double standard going on in the way that we look at the various options when people. When people look at the upsides and downsides of nuclear, they take everything into consideration, yes. all of the waste and all of the cost. And when people look at renewables, uh, they sort of have a narrower lens and they're only looking at the right now and they're not also factoring in, okay, well, what happens to that waste when the solar panel is uh, is past its use-by date? What happens to the energy that it takes to produce the subsequent solar panel that you then have to buy in 20 or 30 years time while all the you, time so i mean yeah. states are still running and all that this happens all the time with people will say to me the biggest argument i get about nuclear is what about the mining uh, do people think that <laughs> wind and solar are created out of magic fairy dust because mm. actually there is a lot of mining involved i'm not i'm not against mining if it's done correctly and people want the jobs and whatever but let's be honest that they require a lot of mining, right? They require a lot of natural resources. Now, for me, put that money into something that's going to last a long time because you build it once and it's there for a long time and it doesn't need any backup or additional grid stuff added to it. For me, mm -hmm. that makes sense. But still, I'm not saying exclude anything. I'm not saying exclude anything that's clean energy. If you can build it, build it. I, you know, I've gone. No, from, and I mean, in terms of the cost, yeah. like you know, people, we find money for what we need to spend money on. Like it's just a matter of priorities. When when we have to spend money, we spend money. Australia has a very generous rooftop solar subsidy program and a fast tracking of rooftop solar to waive a lot of the restrictions that it takes. Like you can basically hop on your phone. There's a government app. You can apply for the right to put solar panels on your roof, and you'll get a response almost immediately in the United States, it takes like four months and you have to go through a development mm. application process with mm. your local council and, you know, your neighbours can object and all this sort of stuff because it doesn't look pretty. Uh, and, you know, the, the amount that you get paid back in terms of rebates and things is vastly less. Here it's mm. a, a no-brainer and as a result, mm. Australia is by far, by far has the highest uptake of rooftop solar. More than a quarter of households mm. generate power mm. on their roofs in Australia and they think that by... The middle of the century you know which believe it, it sounds like a long way away but it's only 27 years away <laughs> two-thirds of australian households will be generating their own uh solar electricity solar power so my mm. my sort of baseline assumption is that if humankind is going to survive to become 
you know, if we're going to get over this sort of existential hump of like AI and climate and nuclear and nuclear uh, weapons, I mean, and all of these other challenges that we've thrown at ourselves in the past century, and if we're still around in 10,000, let alone 100,000 years, there's no way that we're not going to be 100% renewable eventually. Do, would you agree with that or do you see nuclear as being always part of the mix? So when you say 100% renewable, you mean not the biogas, not biogas, just hydropower, wind, solar? Well, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like in 10,000 okay. years, but it's well, inconceivable no. to me that we're going to survive as a species if we can't find a way to not be alchemists who turn good stuff into polluting shit. Oh yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I think that applies to everything, right? Not even just energy. We've, we've, there's a lot that we need to change, but, um, at the same time. So the thing with having the, the rooftop solar, that's great. That's, and, and it's sad here because we used to, it used to be subsidized and it's not anymore. So very few people get panels on their roofs. Now. I know it's not super sunny, but here, but look, you will still get plenty of sunny days in the summer and it does, you know, benefit people. Um, in an energy crisis to be able to create mm -hmm. their own homegrown energy. So I'm, I'm all for that, but, but the reality is that that's not, so, so the world is electrifying and this is good. So here we're switching from gas boilers to heat pumps and there's a huge boom of electric vehicles. What that actually means is that our need for electricity will go up, not down. So you can generate more on your houses and you can have some, you know, local, solar farms or wind wind farms that generate some of the power but we are we are a very energy uh dependent species we're a very energy rich species and we always have been since the dawn of time we have been right since since humankind arrived we went right we're struggling what what should we do there's fire fires happen we don't know why this is what happened right with hunter gatherers we don't know why but let's try and use that might get a little bit burned in the process but it might be beneficial the ones the, 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 our ancestors who drove that forward and and actually used fire and learned to tame it and use it they we're here because of them you know they so they they found that it warded off predators and flies um it created a social setting for a hearth which linguists think is how we developed language um because that's where storytelling originally came from um our brains grew bigger because now we could preserve meat and it was calorie rich now so our brains grew bigger, making it harder for women to give birth um, because our heads are so big now. And that calorie preservation also meant that we weren't so reliant on hunting all the time. It didn't matter if you, did, uh, you couldn't find something to hunt um, one week because you had all this preserved um, calorie rich food that you'd, you know, that you'd been able to create because of fire. And that technology uh, was very polluting. We don't want everybody using that all the time, but at the time that was drove humankind forward, right? Now I think now we need we need fire 2.0. We need the energy density, but without the harmful, uh, you know, repercussions of, yes. of air quality, poor air quality, and respiratory issues that go with that, and and all of that. And to me, that is atomic power, and that has always been atomic power. And if we discovered it tomorrow, I think we'd think, wow, we've saved humanity, amazing. But because it has this legacy and history of, you know, all of these perceived problems, and mm. yes, there are problems, but there are problems with everything, every single thing, every single source of energy has problems. They all have mining, they all have, uh, they all require resources. They, they're all very challenging, difficult to build in many ways. We, but for me, I really think the only way we will prevail 
propel into the future is to recognize that we will find new ways, whether we like it or not, to use more energy. It, we don't know what's coming next. I mean, when I was a kid, everybody didn't have a laptop. It was not normal to have your own laptop and your own uh, mobile phone that needs charging every day, right? This, suddenly we need a lot more energy. So we we should insulate buildings and we should put solar panels on our roofs and do all these things to reduce where we can, but we will continue to use more energy. So when you ask, what do I think in the future? I think we'll have found even more ways to use energy. There'll be new things that we can't even think of now. And for me, it's really important that that comes from clean sources that we put in place now, because otherwise it will just keep coming from fossil fuels and that that mm. we cannot sustain that. We cannot sustain mm. that, as you know, we both know. Yeah, uh, and we shouldn't have to. We shouldn't have to because and we don't have to. It's such an, it, options it's a, on the table. A very interesting thought experiment that you just dropped in there that I hadn't thought about, which is if we discovered it now, it is interesting to imagine if we hadn't had nuclear and if every five or ten years scientists were saying we think we're getting closer to nuclear fission, the way that they say that about cold fusion. And if all of a sudden they were like, we've cracked it, we've done it, we've got a nuclear reactor, it's safe, it throws off massive amounts of energy without contributing to the climate crisis at all. I mean, it's hard to imagine that we wouldn't just go into into super overdrive of being like... But there's all this kind of legacy of bad storytelling kind of what we were saying earlier about people go to Australia and they fear the snakes. You know, you don't need to fear the snakes, fear crossing the road. That's where the risk is. Yes. Well, every day we're breathing this air in. Every day we're bre- And I say to people here when, when uh, you know, they... Um, we took, So in Britain, we're very heavily dependent on fossil fuels. About 60% of our mix comes from abroad. We have a ban on onshore wind, which I think is wrong. Um, and we don't subsidize solar panels. And on onshore wind? Sorry, yeah. what does that mean? Does that mean offshore? You can't, build, uh, you can't build, you can build it offshore. You can't build it onshore. You can't have a windmill on the, on, no. on British no. soil? No. It's, I know. So, wow. you know, so. Nuts. Why? Why? Because yeah. of birdies? Or, or because neighbours don't like them? Um, NIMBY, NIMBYism, NIMBYism, sadly. Right. So even in the last year, I saw this and I thought it was very, very disappointing. In the last year, the number of solar farms that were proposed and rejected because residents were against them um, was the highest in British history. And we are in an energy crisis, Josh. <laughs> we are at bills on quadruple what they were a year ago. And this is the first winter of dealing with that. So I, it baffles me that people don't understand a really basic thing, which is energy equals life. Energy, we need that. We need lots of energy. And I'm, I'm all for energy abundant, energy rich culture, because I think we should have cheap. It should be cheap to warm your home. It should be cheap mm. to, to cool your home if you're in a hot country, not here, but you know where it's needed. I, I mean, I think it's it also, but, but we, I just, just, just so disconnected from it. I just want to double down though on the on this question of what it it matters what country you're in and it really really does like I mean I I've just come back from New Zealand uh where my mum's from you know they have the third highest rate of renewable energy uh in the world after Norway and Iceland 80% of their electricity comes from hydropower and geothermal but Australia doesn't have geothermal <laughs> you know no, no. Australia yeah. only has a little bit of hydropower because we're the driest inhabited continent yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, our mix is going to be different. And Germany does not have, Germany and Britain just don't have Australia's sunshine. And, but nonetheless, I want to get to waste. I want to get to this question of waste. It seems to be something, this is the the only sort of remaining sticking point that I still 
that I still feel and I still run mm-hmm. into a lot, which is, mm-hmm. is it, what is the moral, like, I understand that I understand weighing up the moral upsides and downsides of, you don't want people dying from particulate emissions from coal-fired power plants. So you want a clean source of energy now. We don't quite have renewables quite there. And so we need just something to tide us over in a lot of places, maybe not in very, very sunny, windy countries, but certainly in countries that are cloudy and cool. Um, I can't quite get over the question of whether or not it should just be forbidden to produce things that are going to continue to be highly dangerous in spans of time that are completely inconceivable to us over the course of which whole civilizations could rise and fall. Our, our languages could be lost. All of our computer data could be lost. We could revert to being cavemen and women, and Mm. we could be just stumbling around in tens of thousands of years. And their, you know, ancestors from another universe have bequeathed to them stuff that's going to despoil their environment and kill them is, is that like what have i, I mean, got wrong so, well first of all i think if we don't invest heavily in nuclear now if we don't build lots of power plants around the world now there's no point looking ahead to ten thousand years that's not going to happen you've said it yourself the technology for renewables might be around the corner but right now for most countries right now and the most emissions in the world aren't coming from Australia and New Zealand, by the way. And, and it, yeah, it's great that New Zealand has the ability to get geothermal and hydropower, but most countries don't. So what, what are they going to do? How are we going to do that right now? How are we going to decarbonize? Um, what we decide now will have repercussions for, for those future generations that you're worried about, um, which is what I'm worried about. Um, but the waste, so there is a misinformation about waste. Um, and a lot of fear about this idea that it's there's lots of it and it's super radioactive. This isn't this actually isn't true. It does. So first of all, I mean, I didn't say there was a lot of it. Yeah. Okay. So the, there isn't a lot of it. There's very very small amount. Yeah. Um, but it is. You don't highly, need a lot. Smart, I mean, you need a out, no, no. Okay. So it starts out as highly but... radioactive. But first of all, but if you're saying we should never have waste, do you remember just recently in Australia they lost that little um, <laughs> the little pellet. Yes. The pellet, right? That was not yeah. from nuclear waste. That was from, sorry, it was nuclear waste, but it was from medical waste. Yes. So are you saying that we should have no medicine that creates nuclear waste? Because no, no, because the balance the of upsides and, yeah, the balance of upsides and downsides is but so we are talking clear. about people dying if we don't switch to clean energies. Yeah. Oh. I mean, look, Australia has a nuclear reactor simply in order to produce, yeah. uh, yeah. produce medical things because people will die right here and right now if we don't produce a microscopic little capsule full of radio radioactive waste just enough to produce the you know but that's but when we're talking about but when we're talking about nuclear waste it is just you know it's a soda can from how much from a power plant over what time i'm trying to remember exact years now um I think so over the lifetime of a nuclear power of a nuclear reactor is something like a football field that's a few yeah. meters deep or something. Yeah, but each but that the waste itself is very small. It's because it's buried in several layers of concrete and other materials shield humans or, or anybody from the radiation. So you can go up to these canisters and hug them, which I've done. These dry fuel mm. casks, mm. Um, they they're extremely strong. They've been tested by you know 
planes have been flown into them and they're not even dented and they don't harm anybody is the main thing from my perspective is very well managed um there's no case of anyone being harmed by waste ever in history probably the closest was that pellet um which they found because we're very good at we're very good at finding radioactive substances it's very easy to monitor it's not you know it's much easier than to control than something like air pollution which is just around us mm. um and to and people who don't know this story there was a truck driving through remote the remote outback of australia with a radioactive pellet on, that it was being transported and it somehow came off the truck and fell in the middle of the desert and we're talking about an area like i mean western australia is like the size of western europe or like half the size of the contiguous united states and it was just lost in this massive uh, uninhabited desert and uh, everyone lost their minds for a little while although uh, scientists were saying look it doesn't really matter it's not gonna you know it's not like it's gonna hurt anybody it will you know it'll irradiate a couple of lizards out there but nothing too bad but they did then after a few weeks they did manage to track it down uh and recollect it so that's what like that's a what needle in a about. haystack definitely incredible yes. incredible not a lot of hay but a lot of yeah uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> so there isn't a lot of waste all the high level nuclear waste produced in the world would fit in a single football field to a height of around 10 yards um now, most of the waste, so most of the waste that is produced is just low level. So it's like, it's same as medical waste, you know, in hospitals where they do radiotherapy and things like that. It's like gloves, uh, lab coat, all of that gets cleaned and decontaminated. That's that's 97% of it is low or medium level. Um, what's what's left behind, the 0.2%, that's, that's the high level waste. And that's what you have to store for a long time. However, it, it has a half-life, which means it breaks down very quickly. It's not true that it's as radioactive on day one as it is in 10,000 years. That's not true at all. It's not even in 10 years. It has a half-life and it breaks down very, very quickly. Um, and, and it is so safely managed that in France, they actually, because, you know, France has had a nuclear program for a long time and they've sort of yeah. got their ducks in a row. They actually recycle it because once it's used, it's um, there's still a lot of energy in the in the fuel. It's just dirty so they clean it basically a, a reprocessing plant which is based at the power plant doesn't take up more space um and they recycle it and they reuse it and that you know a lot of waste even our waste i think has been shipped off there before where they'll just recycle it which i think is the best thing for it until it does actually just need storing so a lot of the time when when we're storing it it's because we're thinking later we could extract that and use it because it's an energy right. it's a highly dense you know uranium is a highly dense energy source a tiny a tiny amount goes a long way produces a lot of power um which i think is important when you look at mining impacts because it's just so little that you need but so um, just just to clarify so where does your head go when we think about the amount all right each nuclear power plant that's only uh, you know a football field however much deep we encase it we entomb it in very very safe substances we store it somewhere that's uh, geologically inert like the australian outback or the american outback or mm -hmm. something like that mm -hmm. um it's aren't that you're unlikely to have any earthquakes there in the next mm -hmm. how many tens of thousands of years mm -hmm. nonetheless if you embark on a full-scale global nuclearization program you're talking about how many i mean thousands yeah so yeah so well not thousands but yeah more so in the countries you know, where they're very yeah so in the countries where they're they're very confident of their nuclear programs they are thinking ahead and they're building geological waste depositories so that's finland and sweden these are already like they exist they're real you know you can go down there on a tour actually i might do that at some point um and they they, they it's basically the theory is you took this stuff out of the ground, let's put it back. It's really deep underground. It's completely safe. 
and there's lots of space to store it there. And it's not like in 10,000 years they'll come across this radioactive waste because the elements down there are already radioactive, right? That's that's where you get uranium from. Radioactive radioactivity is all around us. It exists naturally in nature. Um, and in some areas it's higher than in others. So they have this program and that but that's largely because people yeah people are afraid and they don't want it in their backyard and i can understand that so they're creating these depositories but in terms of you know you said it's safe if there isn't an earthquake or tsunami well actually when the fukushima daiichi power plant melted down in japan they did have waste stored at that power station it wasn't even damaged it wasn't dented it's so ridiculously safe there is you can't do anything with it it's (laughs) They 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 test this stuff by flying planes into it. There are videos online where they show it's called a cask <laughs> really? test. Look it up, a cask test. You actually There's have to videos. fly a plane into it to know that it's yeah. not going to be damaged this, by a plane. Do you know when I do you know when I said to you that they really think of everything, and it's all costed and it's all taken very seriously and well managed. It's actually over the top managed, I think. So they have cask. If you put cask test in um, YouTube, you will get vid- many different videos of people flying these planes into the cask. The cask doesn't even move. They're so ridiculously safe. They're not, probably in 10,000 years, aliens would say, wow, babe, how did they accomplish this? It's quite clever and it's very extremely ridiculously safe. I mean, you want to talk about safety. Let's talk about something that's not safe. Flying, right? Flying is so unsafe if you think about it. But we are very good at making unsafe things safe. When you fly, you're, you're not at risk. You're not at risk. Mm. We have made it so ridiculously safe. You don't think, and I don't think about what's gone into that. How are we shielded from the radiation? How are we not propelled into, you know, a mountain? How how is it so safe to go that fast, that high up? You know, it, people did when when it first became a thing. People did fear it, didn't they? The same as they do with any technology. Yeah. The same yeah. as they did with televisions or even electricity or anything or you know anything really because we think of the worst outcomes but actually we we have enough history now to look at each thing and say well what happened is it safe or isn't it we're flying we know that actually is very safe it's technically a very unsafe thing but and when you know most people do fear plane crashes but actually it's extremely unlikely extremely unlikely i do do think there's a different i mean i understand the point that you're making and that it works with regard to uh the risk of nuclear meltdowns but i'm not sure that it's analogous to the risk of nuclear waste, just in the sense that, so this, I, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a difference between the a risk that I'm undertaking right now for me, and I guess, yeah, a legacy that I'm bequeathing this, for so, almost in perpetuity. And this this goes back to what I said earlier. That will create so much of it that it's not but just this, a tiny pellet in the desert. But this goes back to what I said earlier about you know how do you decide what's necessary? You know, most people will accept the risk of driving because they know there's a big risk. They know it's likely they might have an accident. Lots of people lose their lives that way every year, but they deem it necessary, right? So maybe you deem flying somewhere necessary, although a lot of climate activists would say it's not and we shouldn't do it. How do you determine what the risk is? Well, I would say that energy is necessary. And that it's necessary to get that energy from clean sources that do not pollute the air that our children breathe and do not cause incredible health issues for people who have to live around these coal-fired power stations where, you know, Britain's importing coal all the time. Germany's Germany's using a lot of coal. Uh, Many places around the world are using a lot of coal. Australia, right? Um, Mm. Although I know you're phasing it out. But but the health outcomes are so well known. It's almost like the, the driving we're just used to this risk. We want our lights to work. Now, I'm trying to say, I agree, we should keep our lights running. 
but we we need to transition away from where we're getting that from we need to understand the risk of something that we are happy to live with because we've done it for a long time and because there aren't big scary stories about the waste but actually did you know that coal ash from coal-fired power stations is more radioactive than nuclear waste and do you know that it has been found dumped in waterways because it is not highly regulated the way that nuclear waste is this is a real fact it's a good article a new scientist about it there are lots of things going on here where basically this this a lot of these arguments against nuclear came from a movement that I was very involved in, which was an anti-nuclear movement that kind of conflated weapons with energy and we were against it all. And I was very misinformed, uninformed, and I was against energy, nuclear energy and waste was at one of our talking points. It was an easy way to scare people, even though there are no real stories of people being harmed by it. It was a very easy way to, to scare people. And that's, that still continues now, even though we live in an industrial civilization where waste is a byproduct of everyday life, like every day. No, right? I understand, not just but it's the time panels, thing, do you, hazardous... do, you not, do you not think that, that there's a different calculus there? Does that well, not... Maybe I'm not explaining it properly, but I'm, I, what I was trying to say there was radioactive decay is not, people don't understand that radioactive decay is a, is a thing, basically. It doesn't, it's not as highly radioactive now as it will be in whatever you said earlier, 10,000 years, even in 10 years, the, it becomes less radioactive over oh, time. Oh, I know, but how it's long does it take for it, to become, you know, for it to become basically not nothing that someone would have to worry about if they got curious and started sawing into it with a buzzsaw? So, after 40 years, 40 after years. 40 years? Yeah. You could take these cap- these things the, apart? The, radio- the, radioactive, the radioactivity of the used fuel after about 40 years, decreases to about a, thou- a thousandth, sorry, a thousandth of the level at the point when it was um, taken out of the taken out of the power plant. Really? Yeah. So we don't have, well, why are we bothering to be so careful with it then? Because I people mean... are so scared. But this is what I'm saying, Josh. There was a huge movement against it. I was part of that movement. I watched it happen in real time. We scared people. We got the scare. Hang on, I'm just Googling, I'm just Googling this. People. Hang on, hang on. The yeah. United States Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA.gov, like all radioactive material, radioactive waste will naturally decay over time. Once the radioactive material has decayed sufficiently, the waste is no longer hazardous. However, the time it will take for the radioactive material to decay will range from a few hours to hundreds of thousands of years. Less than 1% will remain radioactive for 10,000 years. Of all, That's of all spent fuel. Right. Well, I don't know what, I don't know what percentage you need to worry about it. Here's an article in Forbes as well. Um, by their science contributor. But radioactivity is all about the dose, right? So that little pellet that they found, yeah, that was highly radioactive. But some elements in nature are more radioactive than other elements. When the trick is knowing where the thing is and shielding people from it, which obviously in that case they they messed up. But you know, no one was harmed by that in the end because we're very good at detecting radiation. Radiation. Mm. I mean, this is saying that the uh, the high-level nuclear waste, the spent fuel from nuclear reactors, is required by the U.S. government to be safely stored for a million years. It says oh, wow. that, <laughs> it says that the, <laughs> the 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 ten ten thousand or a hundred thousand years are the actual time frames of danger. But I mean, they're on the side of caution. They're using I'm just a million gonna, years. I'm just going to come out and say that is so over the top. This is overregulation of something that is so safe. I mean. I would happily have one in my garden. I would happily have a cask That's in my garden. I've been question. to see them. My question isn't isn't how safe is it right now for us, given the the but level. You're talking of about storage. Like, can it be safe? 
but what so what you're saying no, is no, in I'm the not, future I'm not... someone could come along and break into a storage cask with some incredible engineering materials and then do what be exposed to yes that's right it could be exposed to something that irradiates their city i mean <laughs> i'm trying to get my head around this scenario because I mean, it's 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 unlikely there are so many more dangerous things to worry it's, about it's it's sort of a matter of principle i guess i mean you're right that if you superimpose it onto the moral calculus of risk and reward for us right now it seems bizarre to give a shit about what any civilization in in 50,000 years is going to do with our waste because we have pressing problems that affect real people right now. Yeah. On the yeah. other hand, I just feel like there's a moral. But I, I think what I'm not. It's taking a step I'm not, over a moral yeah. chasm to, to, I think to reach I'm into not, the future like, like I think that. what I'm not understanding though is, I mean, I did start to say this earlier, that our lifestyles produce a huge amount of waste. Like that's not, it's hazardous waste. It's not, it people aren't scared us. of it the way that they are radiation. Yeah, but our, our lifestyles create, you know, lead, mercury, arsenic, cadmium, cyanide, asbestos, dioxins, carcinogens. This is just from clinical waste, from, you know, medical treatment. To me, it's no different, right? We The, the, the earth has a wound. We created this wound through fossil fuel use, and now we have to stop using fossil fuels. So we're, what are we going to use? There is no perfect solution. Nothing is perfect, but we have mm. to transition to clean sources. And when, when you have the scientific consensus, the international scientific consensus saying we need nuclear, they, they're looking at waste and they're considering that risk. And they're saying the risk of not switching to that energy source is still worse because of what we are leaving behind right now, right? Like yeah. coal ash, coal ash and, and, and the air pollution and the impact on the climate, which is, by the way, if we want to talk about waste, fossil fuel waste is being stored in the Earth's atmosphere right now. And nobody manages that. That is not managed. People might want to by trying to create technologies where they suck it out of the atmosphere, but that does not exist yet. We are yeah. storing it there right now and we live with that risk every day and I don't understand why. So I find your scenario difficult when it's 10,000 years away when right now people are dying because of that, mm. because that waste is not managed and that has never been managed and it will never be managed. And it has to, we have to get rid of fossil fuels. We have to. And it's unfortunate, I think, that it's become nuclear versus renewables, which came from the environmental movement that was a part of, because we were scared of one, although that's shifting a lot now. Um, and actually, what we should really be scared of is the, the killer that is right in front of us, which is fossil fuels. 100%. Yeah. There is masses of research on this. I'm not exaggerating. The climate impacts, air pollution, whatever angle you want to look at. I mean, Every time we say no to building any clean energy, an onshore wind farm or a nuclear power plant, we are exporting that cost to people who have to live by coal-fired power stations in other countries where they have, they're often the most marginalized communities as well because they can't afford to live anywhere else. They have such serious rates of cancer and other health issues, respiratory issues. If you look up the studies on it, it is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to me mm -hmm. that in Britain, for example, we will say no to a solar farm, we'll say no to a nuclear power plant, but we will import coal from someone who has to live by it in Poland or somewhere like that in a, in a poor community. And they, they can't, I've talked to people who say they can't open their windows because they're covered in soot. This is miles away from the nearest coal, coal plant, but that's how mm. bad it is. No, I get it. I mean, I hear, I hear. waste on the windows. I mean, there's something that there's something we're not understanding about each other's point of view here. Cause I, I completely take your point about, about waste. I just, 
there's something I'm, I'm just saying that a tiny amount in 10,000 years is not something to worry about and if you're talking about technology will be so extraordinary in the future then we'll be able to deal with it surely within 10,000 years extraordinary. it doesn't have to be that doesn't have to be extraordinary to get through uh, through concrete if you don't know what it is I mean we're talking about no, space. no 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 I mean I mean a way of dealing with it whatever's left there'll be a technology to deal with it no why wouldn't that be possible uh, I mean, if everything goes well, then yes. But if everything goes south, then no. But it is going south because we are not transitioning to clean energies. Yeah. No, I get that. It's just like I don't think that you're quite grokking the time frames. I mean, Jesus, like the Enlightenment was 200 years ago. Jesus was two, and Cleopatra were 2,000 years ago. The ancient Greeks and ancient Romans were 4,000 years ago. Written language has only existed for 5,500 years. If we're talking about tens of thousands of years from now, there's no guarantee that whoever is inhabiting planet Earth is going to understand any of the writing systems that we currently use. We'll understand the meaning of visual so, signs so future, that we use. So you, to warm okay. them off so you think stuff. that future societies will not be capable of detecting radioactive waste? Yes. That so knowledge will be lost. That's possible, yeah. Over the um, vast spans of time. That's, that's so we will go back to how we used to live just using fire or I don't know what's going to happen in 50,000 no, years. Yeah, but this is what I'm trying to say. Is, 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 there a moral, <laughs> I... is there a moral principle in not leaving shit that's going to last for that long and, and just dealing with our stuff right well, now? We're already doing that to the climate. Well, no, in 50,000. You talk about time scales in my lifetime, in 30 years. What have we done to the planet in 30 years? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I guess mean, that's what right. I'm looking at. So no, this all comes down to necessity, because what's happening is I, I hear what you're saying. But I still think that if you want a calculated risk, it's still worth it, because the risks of not do, acting are so much greater. And the risks of fossil fuels are exponential. And we live with those risks every day. So I hear what you're saying. But it's mm. like, um, you know, it's like the snake scenario, someone doesn't want to go to this country, because they might get, get bitten by a snake. Yet many people live in that country. And they they don't fear the snakes and the snakes, they're fine. They they live with that mm. risk because they understand, you know, that's the difference. And this is probably because I've spent years delving into every aspect of nuclear. I've looked at land footprint, which is the smallest of all energy sources, which I think is important in a, in a small country like Britain. Um, you know, and I've looked at, at emissions and I've looked at how long it lasts, therefore how f few materials you need because you don't have to keep repeat, replacing it, you know, in half the time. I've looked at all of that and I have made a different assessment to you where you're thinking about some of these ideas for the first time. And that, that, that's great. I was, I've been there as well, mm. but this is where I've landed where I don't think that that is a huge risk. And I think the bigger risk is, is right now not acting and, and leaving civilizations to frankly, it's just, will be such a polluted world. No one's going to care about a little bit of radioactive waste. Mm. Uh, is, mm. is what I think the worst case scenario. I mean, it will be an uninhabitable, won't it? eventually if we don't stop runaway climate change that's the, the absolute worst case scenario now i'm hopeful i like to think well of people and what we can achieve i'm hopeful that we all just build lots of clean energy and we like with the ozone layer you know there will be a period where there will be global heating and people will suffer and that that will be terrible and we'll lose species and things like that but i'm hoping that then it will stabilize and we will be able to thrive and have clean air and clean energy. And we'll wonder what we were worrying about just because we're left with a little bit of waste, which is manageable. And mm. it's all about manageable risk from my perspective. Right now, I hope, fossil fuels I hope are you're manageable. Right. 
I hope you're right. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, uh, humans it's, are capable of extraordinary things. I like to think yeah. that, you know, we would look, 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 can I give you an example? France yeah, yeah. in the 1980s, they had an oil crisis, not different than, you know, what we're going through now um, in terms of how they it impacted the country. So they, the prime minister, um, Pierre Mesmer, he said, I'm going to, I'm going to build loads of clean energy at home. And, you know, this was before renewables was really on the table. So, you know, they didn't invest a lot in that at the time, but they do now. And he said, we're going to build, we're going to build 58 reactors. And they built them over a period of 12 years. So it's a huge industrial undertaking, lots of workers. This is how they got, you know, the industry mm. and everything off the ground. Mm. And since then, since they decarbonized in, in the 1980s, they have had a clean energy mix since then. And they have not had a Fukushima or Chernobyl. They have not had any accidents with waste. They have not even lost a pellet <laughs> of waste. Right, right. Um, right. So to me, wow, that's incredible. What if everywhere in the world had done that? Would yeah. we have runaway climate change right now? No, we wouldn't. Yeah. yeah. No, we wouldn't. And that's um, how we've got to think in terms of the future, I think. Instead of kind of it's too late, we've, we've, got, to do, we've got to enact these plans now so that future generations will have a planet to live on. Um, can I ask you some first date questions with which I like to end uh, our, our <laughs> sure. conversations for our, our premium <laughs> subscribers? It's just like Rorschach questions. Um, and first thing that comes into your mind, uh, what's your favorite smell? Baked bread. Mm. Freshly baked bread. What fad have you never been able to understand or trend? Um... Plastic surgery? Is that a bad answer? Mm, no, no. Why? Why? Yeah. What why don't I understand it or why? Yeah. Oh, um, I don't know. I just think people are humans are beautiful and aging is beautiful and it's all part of the process and I don't understand yeah. why why people go to great lengths to hide that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what did you do for your last holiday? Uh, my last holiday, I went down south in Devon to an area that I've never been to called the South Hams, which is a really beautiful area of outstanding beauty I've never been to mm. before. Mm, fantastic. Uh, what skill of yours? That was just a little taste of our first date questions, which you'll be able to hear all of if you subscribe to Uncomfortable Conversations. Not just the questions, but of course all of our banter around them, which become a subsequent little episode of themselves. Uh, if you do subscribe, you will not only hear that, but you'll also hear no ads on any episode ever. And you'll get additional content, including opportunities to connect directly with me you can subscribe at uncomfortableconversations.substack.com or follow the links in uh, the uh, the podcast description. Uh, otherwise, I'll see you next time on Uncomfortable Conversations. Mm-hmm.